U.S. election-related data stored by a company in China, a Los Angeles district attorney now dropping the charges against the firm's CEO. At least 11 Canadian election candidates accused of taking funds from the Chinese Communist Party. A recent report details the situation from back in 2019. British police investigating foreign police stations. They say China is operating overseas law enforcement offices, and they're pressuring dissidents. President Biden set to meet China's leader Xi Jinping next week. Will he address concerns over the origin of the pandemic? And China is easing some of its COVID-19-related curbs, likely to minimize the damage to its economy. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Ellie Hart, in for Tiffany Meyer. Election-related data stored in China. A court judge in Los Angeles has dropped charges against the CEO of election software firm Conic. The move comes at the request of a Los Angeles district attorney. The CEO in question is Eugene Yu. Let's zoom in. Prosecutors had accused Connick of being behind, quote, probably the largest data breach in United States history. The company stored data about American poll workers on servers in China. Yu, a Chinese-born American citizen, was arrested in October and charged with conspiracy and grand theft of embezzlement of public funds. The L.A. District Attorney's Office said they wanted to dismiss the case because they're concerned about potential bias in the investigation. The Office of Los Angeles District Attorney George Gaskin responded. In an email to the Epic Times, the office said it was concerned about potential bias in the presentation and investigation of the evidence. The email didn't give specifics about the possible bias. Over in Canada, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is responding to accusations about Chinese influence. A new report says at least 11 federal candidates received funding from the Chinese Communist Party during Canada's 2019 federal election. In a Monday press conference, Trudeau said Ottawa has taken significant measures to strengthen the integrity of its elections processes and systems. He added that Canada will continue to invest in the fight against election interference and against foreign interference of democracies and institutions. According to a global news report published earlier that day, intelligence officials allegedly warned Trudeau about CCP interference in Canada, citing the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. The report said the Chinese consulate in Toronto quietly sent a large amount of money to at least 11 candidates. Several Beijing operators working as campaign staffers also got a share. What's more, a consular official allegedly directed a campaign staffer to monitor one candidate's meetings. Experts have long warned about Chinese interference efforts in Canadian elections. The issue was a main debate topic in a recent House of Commons committee meeting. According to Britain's security minister, UK police are investigating unofficial Chinese police stations in the region. Three have been identified in the UK. They're part of a global network of service stations, reportedly used to intimidate overseas Chinese dissidents. Entity's Jane Werrell has more from northwest London. Now, one of the locations identified as an undeclared Chinese police station is here in Hendon, northwest London. That's according to a report by the NGO Safeguard Defenders. It's one of three found to be in the UK. The other one is in Croydon and the third one in Glasgow in Scotland. Concerns have been raised in Parliament, including by the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee. Now, publicly, these stations are harmless administrative centres for Chinese nationals. But reports suggest that actually, in fact, they are used to hunt down dissidents and alleged Chinese criminals. 
There's evidence such service stations are being used as so-called persuasion operations, coercing Chinese dissidents back to China. We know there are lots of Chinese overseas, um, say dissidents, um, residing in the UK, um, still trying to continue their advocacies. And we also talk about Uyghurs, um, Hong Kongers, you now in the UK. Um, they came to UK because they believe that this is a place where they can be free. However, those stations are basically acting as a contact point for the police departments to still expand their, their policing in those places. The Safeguard Defenders report found that public security bureaus from two Chinese provinces has 54 service stations in 30 countries. And London's Met Police have confirmed counter-terrorism police officers are looking into the report to assess whether the stations could have broken the law and require further investigation. There appear to be two companies at the address for the service station in Hendon. One is Hunter Realty, an estate agency, and as you can see from this plaque, one is New World Law Associates Limited. No one responded for the number listed for New World Law, whereas someone did pick up the number for Hunter Realty, but after hearing I was a reporter, they said they couldn't hear me very well and hung up the phone. The man inside Hunter Realty said they recently had lots of visits from reporters and I couldn't meet anyone without an appointment. Alerting this On the government level, the security minister has recently said the police are investigating the service stations in the UK. Ireland ordered the service station in Dublin to be shut. Beijing's long policing arm is coming under increasing scrutiny across the world. Jane Worrell, NTD News, London. The Dutch government has ordered the police stations on its soil to shut down. A few days ago, a man claiming to be China's national security officer is believed to have threatened to murder a dissident living in the Netherlands. The man has been arrested by Dutch police. A key meeting is underway in Southeast Asia, and both President Biden and China's number two official are slated to join. Chinese Premier Li Keqiang has already arrived. He met with Southeast Asian leaders in Cambodia on Friday, trying to boost Beijing's economic links to the region. One, two, three, please through openness and linkage, the prospects for cooperation between China and ASEAN will be very broad. ASEAN is an association made up of 10 countries in Southeast Asia, members including countries like Vietnam, Singapore, Myanmar, and the Philippines. They surround the South China Sea area. Some of them have territorial disputes with China over those waters, as Beijing claims almost the whole South China Sea as its own and has constructed military outposts on artificial islands there. The leaders are expected to attend a series of meetings over the coming weekend. President Biden is set to arrive in Cambodia for the joint meeting on Saturday. China has a huge presence in the region. Washington's competition for influence is one of the key issues there. China is also a major investor and aid donor for Cambodia, while Cambodia is Beijing's closest ally in Southeast Asia. Earlier in the week, China's premier announced a large aid package for the country. The visiting leaders will also meet during next week's G20 summit in Indonesia. That's where President Biden and Chinese leader Xi are expected to have their first in-person meeting since Biden took office. President Biden will meet Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping next week. Biden hopes to build a floor for the relationship with China, but will be honest about U.S. concerns, including over Taiwan and human rights. That's according to a senior Biden administration official. Let's take a closer look. 
Sino-U.S. ties have sunk to their lowest in decades, most notably since House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited self-governed Taiwan and China responded with military drills. At the 20th National People's Congress last month, President Xi had declared Beijing would never renounce the right to use force over Taiwan. Biden said on Wednesday he would be unwilling to make any fundamental concessions to Xi, but he wanted red lines to be laid out and areas of conflict such as Taiwan to be resolved at the meeting in Jakarta. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said one of the outcomes they're hoping for is to make Taiwan feel comfortable with U.S. support. We'll have the opportunity uh, as an administration to uh, brief Taiwan on the results of that meeting, and I'm confident that they will feel very um, secure and comfortable in the United States' position when it comes to uh, our support for peace and stability across the Taiwan Strait and our commitment to um, the Taiwan Relations Act, which does commit the United States to ensuring we're providing the articles for Taiwan's defense. Ahead of the meeting, Beijing's foreign ministry chief Zhao Lijian on Thursday called on the U.S. to stop distorting the One China principle, Beijing's position that there can only be one sovereign state under the name of China, and that Taiwan is an inalienable part of its territory. U.S. officials, meanwhile, have been pushing Taiwan to modernize its military so it would be hard for China to attack. The U.S. has approved more than $20 billion in arms sales to Taiwan since 2017, and in October, Washington considered a plan for joint weapons production with the self-ruled island. With those topics on the table, will Biden also bring up the origin of the virus? When asked during a press briefing on Thursday, White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre declined to answer the question. Also this week, China eased some of its strict COVID-19-related restrictions, the shift in hopes of minimizing the impacts on the economy. But at the same time, Xi Jinping is still vowing to stick with the policy. Here's more. China on Friday eased some of its harsh COVID rules. This included shortening quarantines from seven days to five for close contacts of infected people and for inbound travellers. It also removed a penalty for airlines bringing in too many cases, as well as other antivirus measures. The loosening of the rules came a day after China's new Politburo Standing Committee discussed COVID during a meeting chaired by President Xi Jinping. Infections numbers have hit their highest since this year's Shanghai lockdown, with Guangzhou currently the epicentre. Despite this, the committee stressed the need to minimise the impact of containing outbreaks on the country's economy. The move has cheered the markets, with Shanghai's CSI 300 jumping almost 3% and the yuan strengthening as high as 6.06 per dollar, its strongest level since September 22. After this policy decision, foreign investors bought $2.1 billion worth of Chinese shares, the biggest amount in two months. Oil prices jumped by about 3% on Friday as China eased some of the COVID-19 curbs. Work-from-home orders are still in effect in some cities. Travel across China remains low as people look to avoid the risk of being forced to quarantine. Meanwhile, a new round of lockdowns in China's third largest city, Guangzhou. Local virus cases are seeing an uptick, over 2,000 cases in 24 hours. Guangzhou is among the cities most critical to China's economy. Aside from being a major manufacturing and trade hub, the city sits in one of the leading economic regions in China. That region accounts for about 7% of China's GDP. 
Locking down the city could prove a blow for China's already slowing economy. For now, it's under partial lockdown. About 5 million are ordered to stay home through Sunday. Only one person per household is permitted to go out for groceries, and just once a day. Public transportation has been halted and classes suspended. Flights to Beijing and other big cities also on hold. Up north in China's capital, Beijing, the city's 21 million residents must get tested daily for the virus. Many schools have switched to online classes. Hospitals now offer restricted services. And some shops and restaurants are shuttered, with staff under quarantine. The world's biggest online shopping festival is here. Friday marks China's Singles Day, a digital extravaganza. But the event's usually sky-high sales numbers played out a little differently this year. Let's take a look. One research firm said Alibaba and other Chinese shopping giants saw a nearly 5% fall in sales. That's during the first 12 hours of the event's final day. The number fell in line with lower expectations for this year's event. Analysts put consumer sentiment at a low point due to pandemic-related lockdown measures and a slowing economy. Singles Day is normally one of the high points of the year for China's e-commerce companies. It's the world's biggest online shopping festival and has become a multi-week event. Alibaba usually hires a major celebrity to perform at its gala show, but this year it didn't happen. The move appears part of an effort to play down hype around the event, as Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping pushes his idea of common prosperity that aims to clamp down on what the Communist Party sees as so-called excessive behaviors, mainly targeting big companies and China's wealthy. Analysts expect this will be the weakest ever year for online sales growth over Singles Day. City analysts forecast Alibaba will reach up to $77 billion this year a rise of up to 3.6%. That's compared to a much larger 26% jump two years ago. Coming up, China's economy is seeing a slowdown, while the country's leader is getting more aggressive. Will China lash out at the West? And are we en route to a global crisis? We hear from Steve Yates, former Deputy National Security Advisor at the White House, about his take on the situation. More on that after the break, here on China In Focus. With a slowing economy, China could plunge the world in a period of crisis. That's a precipice Steve Yates, former Deputy National Security Advisor at the White House, said the West is facing. What can the U.S. and other Western countries do to reverse course? Here's what he had to say. And Steve, you mentioned building our own resilience and like independence in energy and all these strategic areas. But it seems right now, especially under Biden, there's this the Biden administration, there's this, uh, you know, focus on climate change and really moving into green and renewable energy and away from fossil fuels. But it seems with that, say, electric vehicles, you need lithium or cobalt and all these different minerals or even the solar panels. And all of that comes from China right now or is processed in China. So how do mm -hmm. we do that? It seems like we're becoming less energy independent. So what can America do? Certainly, the Biden administration's emphasis on climate over all else, I think, is a problematic proposition, not because the climate doesn't matter. Uh, it's just the, that their way of going after this seems to destroy our economic base before we can save ourselves from the climate. 
And really anything that destroys us, it doesn't matter whether it's economic downturn or a climate catastrophe, we should be, we should be working to avoid that. Uh, and instead, they seem to be focused all on one that's in the distant future. Now, they argue it's near term. Uh, and meanwhile, this near term effort uh, to try to address energy uh, supply, uh, inflation is a massive problem for the United States. A lot of these green policies increase the price of fuel, and that's hard on households. Uh, and so uh, I don't think they've found a sustainable path toward the goal they seek. Uh, certainly, it has shifted a lot of power towards China, uh, and China has not proven willing to work with them on this either. So hopefully, they will sober up and come back to work with Americans and broaderly, more broadly in this hemisphere to do things ourselves without having to rely on them. China has, you know, not really made a promise. It's actually boosting its coal productions, you know, is like boosting its own manufacturing. So given the two different paths, I think someone made the argument it's global warming, it's not regional warming. So it's like if we're cutting back here, but China's boosting their own coal production, how does that end up playing out? Well, number one is facing the truth. Uh, all of the promises that China has ever offered in this, con this conversation about climate, which has gone through several administrations, Republican and Democrat, and differing levels of priority, but all the promises they've offered have been very far off in the future, well beyond the tenure of any given Chinese leader, and way beyond any other commitment that other countries have been binding themselves to. And what we ought to be doing is instead reactivating our development and use of clean nuclear uh, energy. There's small modular reactors that are efficient and more recyclable. Uh, we can be doing that in our country and in our hemisphere and with other partners. Uh, there are things that could be done in collaboration with an Elon Musk or others that want to work on battery development and others. None of this is perfect, but we have to be realistic about the energy supply necessary to run modern life. That's not going to be wind and solar. We're going to have to have some degree of batteries involved to avoid brownouts and blackouts from time to time. Uh, and uh, I think the potential collaboration among the creative free world is more likely to solve this problem than either a government recommendation in the United States or cooperation bilaterally with China. One thing that's kind of interesting is uh, Xi Jinping just secured his third term recently at China's 20th Party National Congress. And part of that is there's a huge emphasis on the ideology, the Marxist-Leninist-Maoist ideology of, you know, rising communist and weakening U.S. especially. And given that, but then we also look at China and the economy side isn't doing very well, right? You have the zero COVID-19 lockdowns, you have you know, companies like Apple moving out and moving to India, some of their manufacturing. So given this like weakening economy in China, but growing aggressive rhetoric, how do you see that impacting us in America? I do think it's a risky period. Uh, and for many, many years, people have talked of the threat of China uh, being presented to us by way of their overtaking us economically, overtaking us militarily, but basically becoming so big that we would need to form some kind of a bargain with them to share power and maybe even submit to some of their 
uh, preferred rules of the road. Uh, and what I think we're seeing now is that China's economy never was as big as people estimated, uh, that the pressures of what's happening in China with the lockdowns, uh, the efforts that they're making to insulate against potential sanctions, uh, all of these things are actually uh, putting pressure, downward pressure on China's economic productivity. They also have a demographic problem of a couple of generations of a one-child policy, uh, not very open immigration policies. Uh, and so there's, a, this, I think, a real structural question of exactly what level China's economy could grow, even under the best of circumstances, and they're not in the best of circumstances. So I think we're in a period of risk because of a crippled China, a highly nationalistic and ideological China lashing out in a period of crisis. Uh, and that could lash out at, at Taiwan, it could lash out at Japan, could lash out at the United States. And Steve, any last words you'd like to add? Well, I do think that this is a really important time of inflection for American culture and where we're going in the future. We essentially seem to have a 50-50 divided country. Uh, at least it's a country that still has these basic freedoms, a very, very strong base uh, for our culture and economy to build upon. Uh, I hope that we are moving in the direction of doing the same and revitalizing our alliances and others. It's just a very, very important time, I think, with Xi Jinping being aggressive and maybe believing his own propaganda that this is his power mo moment. Uh, so I hope we are wise to that and we organize together against that. Steve, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. My pleasure. Thank you. That's all for today's China in Focus. I'm Ellie Hart. Thanks for watching and have a great weekend. Secure, the true solution for your digital privacy and security. Secure is a private and secure messaging and email solution hosted in Switzerland using military-grade encryption and Swiss privacy laws, giving you true privacy. Secure is 100% private and does not collect or sell any of your personal data. Secure's Helix technology connects you securely to our Swiss servers without the need of a VPN, guaranteeing privacy and security for all your communications. Secure Messenger doesn't require your phone number or any personal data that hackers target. Chat by Invites allows you to chat privately and securely with anyone outside of your secure network without the need for others to download Secure. Secure Send offers you a private and secure way to email anyone outside of Secure. You won't find this level of privacy or security on any other email or instant messaging application. Visit secure.com. Regain and protect your privacy today.